I, along with thousands of other media-hungry, quarantined people with an Amazon Prime account, recently watched the 2011 film Contagion. It took me a few weeks to get to it. I'll admit, I was reluctant at first. I wasn't sure how I'd feel about watching a movie about a global pandemic that sort of predicts kind of what we're going through right now. The movie opens on a black screen. Someone coughs. <coughs> I almost turned it off right then. <coughs> In the opening sequence, as the spooky thriller music starts, there are images around the world of people appearing to be sick and touching a public surface, followed by another hit of that spooky music. It's supposed to show that a virus can spread alarmingly fast in a globalized world, that a sick person can touch a surface in an airport on one side of the world, then someone can contract a virus, catch a plane, and infect a town on the other side of the world. Not a surprising observation for us, right now. But I think in healthier times, it might have even seemed conspiratorial. And yet, there are many, many issues that involve systems that link us together— Things like water and food scarcity or global warming. They too, like a global pandemic, can seem far off and less urgent when they don't impact our daily lives. Until, of course, when they impact our daily lives. We don't shy away from these big problems, but we don't talk about the problems, we talk about solutions. Today we're talking to journalist Nelifer Hadayat about the big picture issues that define our world and what we can do to make a difference. From Neon Hum Media, this is Telescope. I'm your host, Jonathan Hirsch. And Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the foreseeable future, we're going to bring you stories of people who are far away, up close, and how each of us are learning to live through this pandemic. Our inability to prepare for a global crisis is at the heart of why many of us remain locked in our homes right now. It's why I'm speaking to you from inside a closet in my house and not my company's recording studio in Los Angeles. The threat of a global pandemic until this year sat neatly on a shelf alongside other big-picture problems we keep putting off. Humanity has a bad habit of arriving late to these issues. All of this has me thinking that perhaps something to learn from this moment is about how we view ourselves in the world, how our interdependence is more than a pleasant liberal bumper sticker, it's a means to survive. Nelifer Hadayat is the host of Course Correction, a podcast that tries to tackle big issues that affect us all globally. And she tries on the show to see how our individual lives can impact those big issues. I wondered how the lockdown was impacting her life. She lives in London. It's so weird to me because as a, as a refugee myself and as, as a child of displaced parents. Um, I'm very, like, this feels very, in some ways, familiar to me. It feels like a lot of the things that I'm experiencing in the tumult, in the upside downness and the kind of uncertainty of it all just feels really stuff that I've experienced in my life being a refugee. Nelifer was born in Afghanistan in the midst of civil unrest. The Soviet Union was retreating from the region, leaving a power vacuum. Six rival armies were vying for power in Afghanistan, nearly all of them backed by foreign governments. Nelifer, her family, and the millions of people who lived in Kabul saw their country torn apart in the ensuing civil war. They had no choice but to leave. 
And that stuff feels really, it, it's, it's weird because it reminds me of some trauma that I've been dealing with recently where things that I was going through and like hearing rockets go off and seeing dead people and all of the stuff that I must have experienced, like the two, three, four, five-year-old Nalifa must have experienced. I'm, I'm, I'm living with the consequences of those now as a 32-year-old Nalifa. When you arrived in the UK, what, what, what are some of your first memories of being there? So I arrived on the shores of the UK um, in 1994 and I was about six years old. And to come from Afghanistan, one of the most dangerous, corrupt, unstable, war-torn countries in the world, to one of the world's most successful, wealthy organized countries. It's like living in the upside down, except I went the other way. I just remember very distinctly my first day at school um, in year two in North London. And I remember everyone, it felt they were attacking me. They were shouting at me because they would speak really loudly and they'd be like and later on my friends told me they were like we were just saying hello and we were telling you our names but they were like hello i'm jonathan nice to meet you and i'm just like i don't understand anything they're saying and i'm like why are these white people shouting at me what have i done nellifer no longer had to worry about a war at her doorstep just like any kid on their first day at school she had to worry about fitting in Except for her, that meant adapting to life in Britain, too. I had to learn everything. I had to learn how to use a knife and fork. I had to learn what, what underwear was. I mean, we didn't wear it. We just don't ha- we didn't have that kind of thing. The first thing I fell in love with was the English language. And so I learned English in one summer watching kids' TV. <laughs> so I remember going back to school and being able to understand these strange people and their strange customs and it just it it was weird because at that time the xenophobia that is around migration and the 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 fear and hatred just didn't exist in north london i was welcome jonathan i never felt anything other than welcome and respected and people would call my mum, who would come here all by herself with me and my sister courageous for wanting better for herself and for her children. It was never put in more stark relief than when the war on terror started. I mean, I remember seeing the Twin Towers come down. I remember knowing that this is going to change reality. We're interrupting normal programs to bring you extraordinary pictures from the United States where the both towers of the World Trade Center are now in fire. This is not a battle between the United States of America and terrorism, but between the free and democratic world and terrorism. We therefore here in Britain stand shoulder to shoulder with our American friends in this hour of tragedy. And we, like them, will not rest until this evil is driven from our world. (laughs) 
rage rained down on my country, rage and anger and frustration. It's sort of unimaginable to me, especially coming from the States, to to sort of think about what that must have been, what that must have been like. Me and my mom used to watch the TV and we would watch the Afghan coverage and it would be like 300 killed in airstrikes or, or in, in bombs or explosions or whatever. And you would see the Afghan people's faces and I would see the, 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 the torment and torture that they were going through. And then we would skip, we would go to sort of the BBC news as it were, and we'd see the same incident and it would be like, coalition forces took a village, 300 casualties, moving on. And I'm like, <laughs> they're people too. They're my people. Just like I'm your people. That moment when that was happening is, as a teenager is what led me to want to be a journalist because I was sick of other people telling my story and speaking for me. I wanted to be my own voice and I wanted people to see the reality of the situation. Nellifer became a documentarian for the BBC, Channel 4 and Fusion TV. She returned to Afghanistan in 2010 to explore how life there has changed since the fall of the Taliban. In 2014, she traveled to Vietnam to uncover the secret dog meat trade. Then in 2016, she finished The Traffickers, her eight-part series on human trafficking around the world. She has won numerous awards for her investigative reporting. And I was covering the Arab Spring and you know dealing with the tear gas and the attacks and all of this. And then I was following trafficking networks, you know, f- for the documentaries that I made. And I, and I thought to myself, yeah, for somebody who doesn't feel like she belongs anywhere, it's easy to belong everywhere. It's such an asset. And for someone who, like, my voice was so marginalized as a brown British woman that it just gave me, like, the gumption to be like, no, 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 we are going to listen to the people that, that, that are so often marginalized. And I have spent most of my career just trying to figure out how to give people voices and how to make change in the way that I think is useful and helpful. Um, and I spend most of my time being wrong and learning <laughs> about all the ways that I'm wrong, which is quite a nice job to have, really. As a journalist, you know, my job is to observe, to talk about what I observe. That was what the whole point of like, the the projects that I'm doing recently are all about that, right? Like, how can we change the world for the better? In the early 2000s, Doha debates were a main stage on British television for discussions of global issues. When they returned in 2018, Nellifer was brought on as the Doha debates correspondent. It's her job to connect with the people who were impacted by the debate topic, and to make sure that their voice is represented. And now she's launched a new podcast, Course Correction, where she turns those debates into action. Here's a bit from her show. If the world is facing water shortages, what should I be doing to cut my own water consumption? What would it be like to live on 50 liters of water a day? Could I even do it? I went to work. It's only day one, and I already failed this morning because I flushed the toilet. (laughs) How many liters is that? Oh my God, I, I think a lot. <laughs> Course correction is, is something that came out of like a collaborative um, uh, moment between me and, and Doha Debates. And we tackle in the Doha Debates some of the biggest issues in the world, the refugee crisis, the loss of trust in governments and institutions, um, gender 
uh, equity. We, we, we're not, we don't shy away from these big problems, but we don't talk about the problems, we talk about solutions. I think for too long, journalists have stood in front of a camera with some burning building behind them or some crying mother. And then we tell people, this is what happened. This is the truth. And people don't buy that anymore. People want authenticity. I want authenticity. And so the Course Correction podcast was like, okay, all right, fine. You've convinced me the world needs changing. How? What can I do as an individual to change things? We don't settle for a divided world. We don't want to. And that's, that's how I feel. That's what I hope I bring. Nellifer personally takes on the challenges that she sets forth in the podcast. She tries to live her values and encourages others to do the same. Look, I, I don't know how else to say this, but it's kind of changed my life. I'm not the person I was since when I started to make this series. And for the better, like I am taking responsibility for so much. And that helplessness and hopelessness that I felt like, what am I gonna do against big agriculture? as a vegan? What am I going to do about the amount of plastic in our oceans as an environmentalist? I've now spoken to people and been on this journey in the podcast where I am empowered. So I hope the Course Correction podcast does for the listener what it did for me. It gave me a sense of empowerment that supplanted the feeling of helplessness. In lockdown, Nellifer's job has become less clear. She can no longer go to the places or visit the people who are impacted by the water crisis or climate change or civil unrest. The pandemic has taken away the human connections that power her journalism. As a, as a foreign correspondent, as a journalist, it's not only the frustration of being locked indoors personally, which is driving me crazy, but the fact that I can't do my work, the fact that I can't meet people and, and do the thing that feels so um, instinctual to me, is of the highest frustration. It feels like this pandemic has like ripped apart the very fabric of, of, of what I believe in, what I'm passionate about, which is discourse, talking to one another. COVID hasn't entirely stopped Nellifer from doing her job though. Although it's not the same, she's still able to connect with people through FaceTime and Zoom. She was carrying on as best she could until the distance between Nellifer and her family was punctuated by the death of a loved one. So I'm going to try and tell the story without crying, but you'll have to bear with me. My cousin died in a motorbike accident a few weeks ago, and um, I got the news in, when we were in quarantine, um, and I had to go and tell my mother, who I don't live with, that her nephew's dead. There are some things you can't tell someone through text or over the phone or through Zoom because instinctually, we know that the words will not be enough. Nellifer had to be there for her mother. So I get into the car and I drive to my mom's house and the whole ride there, I'm thinking, how do I tell her without touching her? I'm, I'm putting her life at risk. How do I <clears throat> try and grieve for the, the loss of his life without touching anyone, without killing anyone else. How do I not kill anyone by giving this news? 
She got to her mom's home and walked in, feeling the weight of the distance between them more than ever. And I stood there in my mom's living room and I told her that her nephew has died and I couldn't hold her when she found out. And up until then, it was just, wow, isn't this such a strange, curious thing to live through? Look at COVID-19, this pandemic is just shutting down the restaurants and I can't get toilet paper. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, it's like, how do I stop my auntie from hitting herself because she's in such pain through her loss? Before COVID, grief could be explained without words. You could feel it in the heaving sobs of a loved one that you pulled to your chest or the wet spot they left on your shoulder. From six feet away, grief feels like a gaping chasm between us and the ones that we love. And that's the moment that that COVID became real to me. Like I'm just putting myself in the shoes of so many other people who are losing loved ones. You know, the number keeps climbing in America. The number keeps climbing in the UK. We don't even know and can't even imagine what's happening in other places across the world where data isn't being collected. And I'm just thinking, this is going to change us as a species if we can't grieve the way that we are supposed to, if we can't love the way that we're supposed to, if we can't express ourselves the way that we're supposed to. So I'm looking forward to the day where I can just hug the life out of my mother and just, well, not literally, hopefully, but but just, I just miss her. I miss those things. I, it, it's as though this virus has like stripped us of our most sacred, atavistic, carnal needs as, as social beings, right? Oliver has been thinking about this for weeks now. The risks of this pandemic are keeping her from consoling her mother. They forced her podcast into her cupboard. But in this moment, she still sees tremendous possibilities. There's still light shining through the cracks. Humanity has an amazing capacity to love and be compassionate. Just look at the way your neighbors are treating you and you're treating your neighbors, right? I don't know if this amounts to hope, but my neighbor just brought me some food that he's cooked, okay? And my neighbor does not does not bring me food that he's cooked, okay? Nellifer and her neighbor, two people who were practically strangers, are brought together just a little bit by this crisis. There is an outpouring of love, understanding, and compassion. And for me, I'm just excited and fearful (laughs) to see if in a couple of years' time, when this thing is a little more under control, does the best of humanity win out or does does our worst tendencies prevail? In this moment of, t- of, of, of true kind of risk, he came over and he handed me some vegan chili. So that truly gives me hope. Also, it was delicious chili. Maybe that's why I'm very hopeful. <laughs> Many thanks to Nellifer for sharing her story. Be sure to check out her podcast with Doha Debates called Course Correction. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Every week we receive emails, private messages on Twitter, Facebook comments from listeners telling us what your lives are like and what you're going through. And at the end of every episode, we're going to share some of that with you. Poppy Lou works as an actor, but these days, now that Poppy is home quarantining with family, that means helping homeschool Poppy's 11-year-old sister, Zoe Lou. For drama class, Zoe wrote a play. Party Pooper. Written by Zoe Lou and edited by Poppy Lou. The premise? Voldemort crashes Dumbledore's pizza party. Time, present day. Setting, Dumbledore's party. Dumbledore's friends were all invited to a celebration party. Ah, this is nice. I really like the idea of having a celebration party. And the Hawaiian pizza is really good. Suddenly. Darkness comes. Wind blows in every direction. Dumbledore instantly knows it's Voldemort. Oh, come on! Why are you so much of a party pooper? Let us duel again. Bro, can't you see that I'm in the middle of a party right now? And isn't it obvious that you're the party pooper? Voldemort excitedly takes his wand out, and Dumbledore reluctantly draws his wand. Let the second battle Begin! They fight, and Dumbledore wins. <laughs> and you thought you could defeat me? So long, sucker! Take the L! Like I said, this isn't over yet. Go away! This could use another celebration party because I defeated you twice! Twice! Thanks to Poppy and Zoe for sharing their play with us. Telescope is made possible by the world-class team of producers, editors, and engineers that make up Nihon Hum Media. Today's episode was reported and produced by Tanner Robbins. John Asante is the managing producer of Telescope. Our editors are Vikram Patel and Catherine St. Louis. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Matt McGinley for our theme music and to Blue Dot Sessions for additional tracks you hear on this episode. Join us on Facebook by searching for Telescope, We want to stay connected with you during this unprecedented time in our history, so please don't be shy. Share your stories with us. Our DMs are open. If you have a story of life in isolation because of the coronavirus that you want to share with us, you can email it to us at pitches at neonhum.com. I'm Jonathan Hirsch. I hope this weekend you find a way to not let the big picture get you down. Maybe go outside and listen to the birds. Actually, that's a good idea. Hold on, I'm gonna do that too. Pretty nice, right? Enjoy your weekend. See you on Monday.